Memorabilia, collecting sounds with Eric Isaacson. My only collections from age 5 to maybe 10 were um, songs off the radio. So I would get blank tapes or tapes that were already used for, you know, Bananarama. I'd even use singles, like I'd find a Bananarama single on the floor in LA because I grew up in Los Angeles and I would tape over it and put just one song off the radio and make my own you know, my own single of a song I liked off the radio on that single. So I was just taping over tapes I didn't like that I'd find around and making my own tapes. And that's that was the entirety of beginning of my collecting was off the radio. Five years, from age five to ten, that's all I did. I had a, um, a boombox, you know, and I would actually take it to bed with me and um, curl up in bed with it, sort of like some kids would have their teddy bear. I'd have my little boombox on the pillow next to me, and I would sit there and have my finger perched above the record button and just waiting for a song I liked while I was twirling the dial with the other hand. And the minute I'd hear a song, I'd boom, hit record, praying that I got, you know, the first few notes, but I almost never did. So usually I missed the first at least 20 seconds of every song. The most sophisticated projects I did, I obviously didn't do when I was five. I did when I was a little older. I would reconstruct whole records that I wanted. I'd go to the record store and I'd write down the track listing for a record. And then I would go home and, um, record off the radio constantly until I could get every track listing, which was, of course, near impossible. So I never really constructed to, except for, for the Beatles catalog. And with the Beatles, there was a radio show called Breakfast with the Beatles. That was a four-hour-long radio show every Sunday. And they would play nothing but Beatles songs. And they would even go into the obscurities and the weirder songs. So I decided to... I wanted to own every Beatles record, but I couldn't afford them. So I dedicated myself to making my own copies of every Beatles record in the proper order. So I went to the record store, wrote down the track listing for every Beatles record, and then I went home and I would record the show and it took me four years, but I managed to construct the entire Beatles catalog off the radio, except for um, Revolution Number no. 9, which was uh, the sort of Stockhausen-y, like music concrete kind of you know, weird piece that they would never play on the radio because it was just too weird. It was five minutes of noise, basically. And um, so they'd never play that. So I finally had to buy the White Album just to get that one song. And when I got it, it was all like car horns honking and babies crying and stuff. I was so sad that I actually cried because I'd spent money on a tape, which I almost never did. But then now I actually like that song. But at the time, it was a great tragedy. Once in a while, I'd buy a manufactured tape. Like I remember buying uh, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush. It was a very big day. My sister was a big influence, so sort of what her and her friends thought was cool, I would examine, you know, if they were listening to The Cure or whatever was popular in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s in L.A., I would, um, I would follow suit and try to examine it, whether I liked it or not. Punk rock, that's how I got into it, my sister and her friends. But I was more attracted to, like, the classic rock and, and sort of oldies. But through that, I got, I got into, you know, deeper back into R&B and and more, a little more root stuff, country music, because that's what those people were in. So like you start to read about the Beatles and you read, oh, they liked Buddy Holly. And then you read about Buddy Holly and he says, you know, I like Helen Wolf. And then you, you go backwards. So that was kind of my introduction. But people around me, as far as my peers went, um, God, I think they were just listening to radio pop music, which I was listening to too. I wasn't pure. Like I was listening to the shitty pop station just as much as the next kid. It's just that I expanded it out to all these other genres too. But I was, you know, if George Michael had a hit on the radio, I would listen to it. Now I hear that music and it makes me want to die. But at the time, I was as subject as everybody else to just, you know, oh, I guess I'm supposed to like Michael Jackson, so I should like Michael Jackson. That kind of mentality was with me, too. You know, when I was a teenager, I started to try to share music with friends, and that was sort of a big way of me trying to win it, you know, win girls' hearts or just fit in. It was, was being the musicologist of the group or whatever. But when I was young, no, never. That was a very private and personal pursuit. When I saw my friends, we, we did what every other kid did. We played with action heroes or maybe comic books. Or I never had a friend who was like a sophisticate who I would exchange 
information about music or culture in the way that I was maybe doing privately. It was more, that was a very, very private pursuit, almost dirty in a way, and almost like nobody really was interested in that. No family members either were really involved in it. Um, even my sister, I didn't share too much of that with. I don't think my mom or dad was even aware that I was I was archiving music off the radio. Because at the time, it just seemed like, you know, you know how it is. It's like I never in my wildest dreams would think that would be the foundation for anything I would do later in life. It was just sort of this weird, obsessive behavior that I kept hidden. And so it never manifested in my, in my life with, or in my public life with anybody else. had um, an obsessive personality when I was young so if I heard a song instead of just saying I like this song I would say I like this part of this song and this part of the song but not that part of the song so for instance I hated saxophone solos so on any song that had a saxophone solo that I was recording I might like the whole song except for that and I would cut the saxophone solo out and just scat sing over it you know like over that part but I'd actually time it and insert my own singing like boop 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 you know scat singing in the middle so that um it would still be a complete song. And it never felt like a joke. It was like very, you know, this is this is improving this song. And I was also very into like, um, like if I got, once I got a few manufactured records, like say Neil Young's uh, After the Gold Rush, I love the whole record, but I hate that song Southern Man. And every time Southern Man would come on, I would come racing to the tape player. Like I was almost in cold sweats, like, oh my God, Southern Man's about to come, you know, like I can hear this load and I'd have to stop it just when that, just so my listening experience wouldn't be tainted by Southern Man. I'd stop it right before Southern Man started and I would even time how long it took to fast forward through Southern Man and then start it on the next song, which was like a 10 second song at the end, you know, I'm going to get you when the morning comes or whatever. So yeah, my listening just for myself was very obsessive, you know, and I wasn't even sharing it with an audience. This was just for my own home listening, but I was curating it very heavily. Well, my early artwork, like when I was a kid, it was just cartoons, you know, newspaper cartoons, that kind of thing. And I, I very much took after that style. But maybe my first major influence, uh, there was this record store I used to go to in Los Angeles all the time. It was in a little strip mall. I always thought the guys who worked there were real cool. And they were, like, really nice to me, but they were also kind of bemused. Like, I was just this nerdy kid who would come in all the time and go to the listening station and listen to stuff. And uh, one day I came in there, and the guy behind the counter was like, yeah, yeah, that kid, that's the one I was talking about. I was, like, really scared, you know, and... So he's like, come here, kid. And I, I walked up to the counter, and this guy says, uh, we got these tapes in the mail, and we were joking. We were saying this is what music would sound like if that kid made it. And he handed me uh, 10 tapes, and they were by this guy named Daniel Johnston. Daniel Johnston? Well, I met Daniel Johnston, uh, I guess, the first time I remember. I heard about him before I, before I uh, really actually met him. I knew, I knew that he was living with, with uh, a good friend of mine. Scott. And, you know, he would make his own tapes and distribute them himself with these very handmade covers, very cartoony. And he would do home recordings. And they just gave me all the tapes. And they were like, these tapes are awful, you know. They told me they were awful, and they gave them to me. And they said, we were just saying, like, you know, this is what music would sound like if that kid made it. You should just take these, take them. So I took these tapes home and I thought they were like amazing. I thought his songwriting was amazing. It was like as good as the Beatles to me or something like that. Even though he was just recording with a little tape recorder and playing a piano and singing. 
And I was under the mistaken impression that he was a kid my own age because he has this very childlike voice, but he was like hyper talented, you know, it's like, I can't believe this, this kid, this is when I'm about 12 years old. I'm like, this kid, he's a genius. He can sing and make his own tapes and somehow get them in record stores and, you know, it just blew my mind. And I assumed that he was a kid too. So it, it sort of emboldened me a little. And the artwork too, you know, I looked at it and I was like, he draws at the same level I do, but his tape is in a store. That was the mark of success. If your tape is in a store, it's real, you know? So it was the same with some punk rock designs when I first saw them that were very gruff and weird. I'd be like, oh my God, I could draw that well, or I could come up with a design like that. I could be in a store, which means you made it, you know, right? So I got really beguiled into making my own work at that point. I got a little more into it when I was 12. And as stylistically, I didn't have like, you know, it's like any kid. I was just grabbing at everything around me. But my style was really defined by my limitations because I wasn't very good at drawing. I wasn't very good at spelling. I wasn't very good at writing. Everything I did was very amateur. And I never really evolved my style very well. So the limitations created a style, which actually became, I think, pretty good because it was like... I had to find a unique voice because I couldn't use tricks, I couldn't use skill, I couldn't use flashing lights and dazzling techniques, so I had to come up with uh, just content that made it stand out because the drawings were never going to stand out. So that's kind of where my skill came from was my limitation, or my style came from my limitations. I didn't keep any, but my sister a while back gave me a little box with uh, five or six of them in them. So I still have them with the, you know, me scat singing and the oldie sections of things. And I have uh, all the hand-drawn covers and stuff. There was one that I made when I was maybe like 12 that was called uh, People Are Bad, Things Are Good. <laughs> and it had this picture of this woman trying to get this lobster off her back, just struggling to get a lobster off her back. And I was like, what is, and I was thinking about it and I was like, well, that looks a lot like something I would do now. It's not good, but, <laughs> but I thought that was really funny that that existed. And then I, the track listing was really the kind of stuff that I would do now on a tape, but maybe a little more popular versions of those songs, you know, like Ray Charles, but it would be like Ray Charles next to Daniel Johnston, next to Pink Floyd, next to, Buddy Holly, and it was all kind of mishmashed together in really weird ways. And that was kind of interesting to listen to. I've been thinking about putting that tape out on the modern tape series I do, but I think it would be really annoying for people. There was this moment where people were just dumping their records when CDs first were becoming popular. I started collecting records in around 1989, 1990, and that was the point when record stores were incredibly cheap. And thrift stores even had great records in them. You know, it's a golden age, really, and it was pre-eBay, but post-CD. So you had just scores of cheap records, and really I started buying them because they were cheaper than cassettes, and they were cheaper than CDs. They were the cheapest medium. And that's why I gravitated towards them. The hardest part was finding a record player. And once I found that, a friend of mine gave me a hand-me-down record player. Once I had that, I was hooked. So I was like, wait, I like these better. They have big arch, they sound better, and they're cheaper than everything else. Why would I be an idiot not to collect these, you know? So, so I got into it, and I actually had, for years and years and years, up until about 1999, yeah, 1999, I had a policy that I would um, not even buy a record for more than $5 because I never had to. Unfortunately, I wish I wasn't so conservative, but I would buy things that I sort of understood the content of in some way or another. Occasionally, I'd have random discoveries, but I had very hard and fast rules. It sounds ridiculous, but if there was a black person in a suit, I'd say, okay, I'll buy that. But if they were had an afro, I wouldn't buy it, which is stupid now. Of course, I regret that. But at the time, I'd be like, black guy in a suit without an afro is a good record, usually. And I'd buy it. 
or if it was a black woman in a beautiful dress, I'd buy it. For bands, like uh, rock bands, I would be like, well, do they look like jocks or do they look like nerds? If they look like nerds, I'll buy it. If they look like jocks, I won't buy it. So I had these weird rules that I never wrote down or anything. It was just sort of like instinctual. I'd look at a record and say, this is why I can't buy this. This is why I can't buy that. Lord, when I come to that end of the giant, we will alive and the battle is won. I'll be coming to die with the cold mulligan. You go here, Cassandra said, well done. never really considered myself a collector because there was always an impermanence about my collection and I was surrounded by people who you know by the time I was 20 I was surrounded by friends who were real collectors I mean they were real collectors they were collecting things and I always had this itch in the back of my head to be like them like really catalog and put things together in this collection but for some reason there was something about it that I couldn't fully dedicate myself to I remember reading about like Harry Smith, for instance, who was an avid collector of things. But once he would get too deep into one time of collecting, he would just get rid of everything. Like he'd collect Russian ceramic eggs forever. And then one day he'd say, I don't care about these and throw them all in a dumpster. And then he'd be like, I collect string figures, like folk string figures. And he would just collect pictures of people doing different string figures. And he'd say, ah, this is... So, I mean, I remember reading that and being like, well, that's a good way to go is just kind of learn as much as you can from one thing and then abandon it. So I collect more as a learning tool, I guess, in that sense. Well done. We thank you. Thank you, Cassandra, for singing this song. Well done. Servant, well done. You did the song well done, too. It was good. Servant, well done. By Gandala, Cassandra, Well, I think that the idea of being a completist in anything is kind of boring, if anything. It's just sort of a boring way to approach something. I mean, Lord knows I've been a completist in many things in my life. I've started getting into something and said, I want to hear everything having to do with this. And it's been good, but it's one thing to want to hear everything or see everything, but there's very few artists or genres or anything that everything should relate to. That speaks of a very weak personality, somebody who can jive with every single thing by an artist. like. Or a very weak artist who just does the same thing over and over again. So uh, completism is is just being dull and complacent and attaching yourself to something that is, um, it's just too easy, you know. Uh, I mean, even when I was engaged in that, there was an emptiness in trying to hear every Beatles song. Like When it got down to it, when I started getting down to the minutiae of it and having to listen to radio broadcasts and stuff, it's like, oh, this is no fun. Like, now I'm just, I'm just on some weird treasure hunt that doesn't, benefit me in any way really that's the danger of, of becoming a record collector is i mean it's like any drug it's like if you're just chasing the first high you know i see these people all the time come into my record store they'll be the guy who when he was young he had this profound experience with an elvis record you know and when he first got that first elvis record it changed his life it got him laid for the first time it uh, made him feel like alive for the first time whatever his experience was it was this great thing so he starts collecting Elvis records and Elvis records and Elvis records and instead of trying to find new ways to feel alive he just decides to recapture that high by becoming an Elvis completist and 40 years later you find this guy coming into my record store you know being like got any new Elvis stuff you got and it's like become so detached from the original instinct that created that when he was a teenager and he got his first Elvis record where it thrilled him and made him feel great and now it's just this compulsive thing he does. Well, I remember when I was a kid, this experience I had with Elvis. I don't. He doesn't even remember that experience or why he's collecting Elvis obsessively. But he has to have every Elvis object. You know, this happens all the time. It happens with kids now with like Morrissey records. Instead of just using that energy and making their own art with it or making their own experiences, they just get obsessed with Morrissey and they collect every Morrissey record in every color from every country, and it becomes this seeking of the original thrill. And then there's also this that you're just chasing the practical thrill that you had when you were young of finding something new, but you forget what it's like to consume it once you get it. 
It's like you remember the part where you went to the record store and you found that thing and your heart started palpitating because you've been looking for it or your friend said it was the coolest thing ever and you need to buy it. And you got to buy it and take it home. But what you're missing from the equation is that moment when you put it on and you made out with a girl to it or you danced alone in your room to it or whatever your experience was. You become detached from part two and just remember part one. Or part one is the part that you can still do and the other part you've become so dysfunctional that you can't do it anymore, so detached. And that's the danger. I don't have the thrill of the hunt, but I, I do have the, um, the heart palpitation when I see something beautiful for the first time. And I mean, luckily I catch myself and I say, well, wait, where does this practically sit in, fit into my life? Am I going to take this home and put it on the shelf? Or am I going to take it home, listen to it a bunch of times and have a great experience with it? And nine times out of ten I say, well, this is the most beautiful thing ever. However, I'm not going to take it home and listen to it over and over again, you know. Or even if it's something from my childhood, I'll say, wow, I loved this when I was a kid and I don't have it anymore. And I'll say, wait, what will my experience be with it now? It won't be the same. I'm just going to put it back on the shelf. So yeah, I've avoided it pretty well, but I'm not pure by any means. I'm still taintable and I still buy dumb things all the time. I've transferred it a lot to collecting books now. I'll collect art books and I'll write it off in my head as I need the inspiration. I need to look at images all the time and these will come in handy for reference one day. But you know, the reality is there's something dark inside me that just wants to possess something beautiful and put it on my shelf. Being in England, half of the people I meet who are cool are really, or 90% of the people I meet who are cool are really into dance music. And in a sense, it makes me feel weird. I'm like, God, I should try to listen to this stuff and figure out what the good stuff is and make them sit me down and listen to the good stuff. But then there's part of me that's also like, you know, it's okay. It's one genre that I just don't get. When I hear those beats and I hear that like loud thumping thing, I just get uncomfortable. So I'm just going to go ahead and let myself be a curmudgeonly limited human being and not get into dance music. I give in to my own darkness in that sense. Like I like to acknowledge and respect my own limitations. And if I ever get stale and I'm just listening to the same things over and over again, that would be one thing. But the truth is I've been very rapidly going through different genres of music all my life. So I'm not concerned about becoming a parody of myself like R. Crumb or something where you just listen to music from the 20s and 30s. You know, I'm just not that guy. I'm not in danger. I'm, I could be that guy if I indulge that dark part of me that wants to do that. But I'm I'm always fighting against that, and I'm doing an okay job of not becoming our crumb, even though I respect when people do that and they get super deep into one thing and really feel it and are very authentic about it like he is, but I don't want to be that. That's not my jam. For me, collecting is, um, well, I, I should make some, some caveats here. I mean, I'm not a collector in that sense. Like, I don't... Uh, um, I'm not an archivist, you know, I'm not looking to fill holes all the time and explore in an academic way information. The part of collecting that I love and what makes it interesting to me is purely your relationship with the object itself as what it represents. Um, you know, a lot of it's like 90% context and 10% content, really. It's like if you're in a place and you're confronted with an object and something about it is calling out to you in some way or another. You know, I'm interested in the relationship between me and it, but I'm not really interested in where it came from and who made it and going way backwards and, you know, and the whole history of it and all that. That's actually not the kind of collector I am. Most collectors I know do it this way, where they are using collecting as a way to educate themselves and a way to explore the world and a way to build their own personality in a way, like to build their own philosophy and, and their own being is to have this collection of things that symbolize what they're about or what they are into. And that's how they build a collection. And then they glean information from each piece and move on from there. And, and it's a thrill of a hunt thing is a lot of it too for most collectors, the conquest, but that's very capitalist thinking. 
you end up just wanting more and more and more and just the thrill of the hunt becomes more powerful than your relationship with the object itself once you attain it. So, and that's really dangerous. You know, that's a dangerous loop you can get into. You're just putting things on a shelf and, and saying, well, I'll retire one day and really enjoy these. But for now, I'm building this artifice to my own interests. And uh, I try to avoid that at all costs. So the thrill is not there for me for that part. And actually, at my home, I don't collect in the way you would think. I, believe it or not, only own maybe 300 records, which isn't very many for someone who owns a record store and does the kind of work I do. Um, because I only like to keep around what I'm currently having a relationship with. I don't keep around the ghosts of things. So I don't keep every Beatles record, even though I love the Beatles. I don't keep a single Beatles record. If I look at a record and I'm like, you know, this is part of my past, or this is something that I might want to engage with in the future, I say, be gone, out of my house. But if it's something that I'm currently having a relationship with and enjoying and, and being with, then it can stay and will we'll have our relationship. And, you know, like all relationships, they'll end and I'll move on and maybe get another one, you know, but and get that one out of the house. That's always been the way I've approached collecting is more about my contemporary relationship with the object. Because I'd go insane otherwise. I mean, my interests are so vast and go in such different directions that I would have to have, you know, 50,000 records to, to represent what I'm into. And that's impossible. I want a job, I just want to work, I don't want to play with you, no, no, I just want to work with you, I don't want to socialize, I don't want to apologize, I have ten lovely kids, and a most beautiful wife. I don't let records in my house by people that I don't think I'd want to go out and have a drink with. That's a big rule of mine. So if a record is by is a really interesting record or strange, but I feel like the personality behind it is a little somebody that I wouldn't want to hang out with, then I don't take it home. I might listen to it at my shop, but I won't take it home. And that's one of my big hard and fast rules. So my record collection is made entirely out of, it's like friends, you know, it's like these are people who I'd want to be friends with. And so that, that's the only people I have records by in my house. Yeah, those are, those are pretty much the rules. That gets rid of a lot of records in the world. And then, you know, I have, of course, the collection of things that I use for my label because a big part of my job is to find things that are sort of generally unreleased or unknown and then make my own versions of them that are more widely distributed. And so when that's, that's another thing. That's, but that's my job, you know. And so, and, but once I use those things to make whatever object I'm going to make out of them or whatever product, then I get rid of all the original source material. Basically what I do for a living is I make these mixed records and mixed compilation tapes. And when I'm collecting stuff for these, which is mostly what I actually collect for, is to use them for these things. And once I use them, I get rid of them. And so I will write them in these lists, um, in these notebooks, and I will cross-reference them with sometimes symbols, usually a triangle, circle, and square, and then also um, I'll use a star. So those four symbols. And I'll use those to denote certain things, like uh, and mostly emotional tone, speed, intensity, things like that. And as far as genre goes, I'll keep the genres in different notebooks. So I have a gospel notebook, I have a blues notebook, um, an African notebook, and what have you. And so I keep these things, and then once I get enough of something that works together with the right amount of symbols, I'll make a tape or I'll make a record, depending on what can be done with it or what could best be done. But yeah, I have literally thousands of songs written in these in these notebooks from over the years, you know, and uh, they're pretty obsessive documents. And in a sense, those notebooks symbolize my record collection more than any physical record collection I have. It's like that, um, that Howlin' Wolf quote where Howlin' Wolf says... You know, I've never been a millionaire, but I've had more money than any millionaire has ever had, or I've spent more money than any millionaire ever has. That's how I feel with records. Like, I've never had a great record collection all at once because I'm constantly getting them and getting rid of them at a really rapid rate, sometimes hundreds in a day. But I've had more great records than a person who has the best record collection has ever had because I have them flowing through me all the time. Listen, man, all I want, Lord knows. A cotton picking job. 
I guess my most valuable record is my Deep Soul Cole 7-inch. And Deep Soul Cole is Fred Cole, who was in a lot of bands throughout the years. He was in Dead Moon, The Lollipop Shop, The Weeds, The Rats. Um, now he's in Pierced Arrows right now. He's been in a million bands since the 60s. But his first record was um, when he was 13 years old. Or no, he was 14 years old. And he was billed as Deep Soul Cole, The White Stevie Wonder. And he was a little kid playing like an R&B song called Poverty Shack with an all-black R&B band. But it never really came out. It was just came out as an acetate. It was never really released because it was just a little too rough and weird, I guess. I don't know. And I have a copy of that. And there's, I think there's only maybe three in existence. It's worth as I shudder to think what it's worth. What do I have that I would never sell? Uh, I have like Moondogs all of his original records because I really like him and that'd be tough for me to part with. Um, I don't know. I guess I'd be okay with selling almost everything else <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> Even the records that I put out, I don't have a complete collection of. Like I let, I let them go, you know, I, I just don't, I don't feel that need to, yeah, I'm kind of detached from having to own these things as a general rule. There's some records I've gotten as gifts that are maybe sentimental because they're gifts, not because of the content of the record that I would never want to sell. But in the end, I'm okay with losing it all if I have to. collection three times over I had one time I had a, a terrible breakup with a girl and afterwards all, I just was sitting at home listening to music all the time and being really pathetic and I'm overly emotional and I remember one day I just said I need to change my my vibe and I went to the record store and sold all my records that was it and then gradually rebuilt my record collection after that but I, I never regretted it and then the second time I sold my collection well, I sold it in two parts. I sold most of my record collection to take a year off at one point, so I don't regret that. But I kept about 500 records at that point. And then um, I took a year off and lived without working for, for a full year using my records. And I was a smart buyer, so my stuff was worth a lot more than what I bought it for. So it was actually a really smart investment, and, and I knew who to sell it to. It would pay me well. So I did pretty good with that, and I got a year off. And at the end of that year is actually when I started my record store, and I still had 500 records that were really good, but I ended up putting all the rest of them in my record store and selling them. So when I started my record store, every record I owned that was left was in it, and I didn't own a single record. And I vowed I wouldn't buy another record until a year of being in business. That was my idea. I would be allowed to borrow records from the record store, but only keep them at home for one week. That was the idea. But what happened nine months in was I had this night that was sort of a dark night of the soul, I just didn't know what to do, you know. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to watch a movie. I don't really feel like reading right now. I'm not happy. And then I just thought really hard. I was like, well, what did I used to like to do when I was, like, what what made me happy throughout my life? And I really, like, looked through my whole life, and I remembered how much I just love scrolling through my record collection and playing things, and even just the process of looking through them and then picking one song. I remembered that, and that night, it was like 2 in the morning, I just went down to my record store because I was like, well, wait, I own a record store. This is crazy. I own thousands of records. I just don't take them home and collect them. But I remembered how nice it was to have a permanent grounding record collection in your home that made your home feel like at home, you know. So I went to the record store and I, I said, I'm going to take 50 records and start a record collection again. And I went through and it was so fun. And it was a, a, you know, middle of the night shopping spree. So I got to do it alone. It was like, I was pretending like I was a millionaire who could buy any record I wanted at this record store that I liked that wasn't mine. And I bought 50 records, you know, I took 50 records off the shelf and took them home. And that's when I started collecting again. And now I always have a record collection at home since then. But only keep the most beat up copies of everything. So even if I find a really nice copy of a record, I get upset that I have to keep a nice copy because I'd rather just sell that. And I'll keep it until I find a super beat up copy that I can trade it for and I'll keep the beat up copy. So um, I have a real junk collection, you know? My collection is worth very little but it's of very interesting things.
a lot of times, you know, you go out and you buy records based on the covers, and of course, you you get your heart broken 99 out of 100 times, and um, a lot of times you get surprised. And especially um, at my record shop, I make a point of needle dropping every single record that comes in. So I make a lot of discoveries that shock me on records that I would never think I would like, and then you know throw it on and learn a lot. I'm finding new artists more frequently now than I ever have in my life because, well, a lot of that has to do with the position I'm in. People are just bringing things to my attention more often, and I'm looking through more records than I ever have in my entire life, and I'm realizing how big the world is, you know? I'll suddenly get into Indonesia. I mean, thousands and thousands of records. I've recently been obsessed with Indian music, Indian classical music. That's been my most favorite type of music of late. And so when I really get into it, I mean, it is endless, and I'm just learning. So just in Indian classical music, there's more recordings than most music industries in the world. Like pop music in America is a smaller industry than Indian classical music. So once you get into something like that and you realize how little you know, I mean, it's like starting all over from scratch. And it feels great and it's super fun and interesting. And I'm having a really good time just exploring that one genre. Same with things like Ethiopian music. I just got into that in the last six years. And now I'm like obsessed with it and I'm really going through it, you know. And I haven't even gone to Eritrean music, which is a huge field too that not a lot of people have documented. And um, I'm going to start trying to get into that too. And it's it's so, yeah, it's so endless. I mean, anybody who says you've heard everything or I've heard all of this even one genre, you know, if you're into garage rock, you can't say, oh, I've heard all that. It's like, no, it's it's so, so endless in every single direction. At my record store, we take in an average of 150 records a day, and there's always, out of that, at least one record that I've never seen or heard before. And I've been doing this for a long time. That's the most fun part, really, is just, you know, the unexpected around the corner is always really fun. Like, I try not to get into that thrill of the hunt thing I was talking about, but at the same time, I do love to explore by listening to random things all the time and seeing what happens. But, you know, it's, it's like that thing where 99% of of the time I'm disappointed in 1%. I'm really excited by what I find. There's many things I've never heard that I want to hear. There's no records that I like want to find just for myself. But there's tons of records that I just want to hear before I die. That's the more important thing to me. Oh, I have a list at home of every Ethiopian record I've never heard. Actually, I have a list of or the ones I know exist and I haven't heard. And I want to hear every, every record that the country of Ethiopia has produced between uh, the 60s and the 70s. I want to hear every record because there's not that many. There's only like, um, you know, maybe... 3,000 or something. So I think I can hear them all before I die. And I actually made a project of hearing every um, pre-war blues 78 that didn't have piano on it, that had a guitar. And uh, I managed to listen to, I think, because I had a book that supposedly had every a listing of every pre-war blues 78 with a guitar. And I think I've heard them all now. I'm pretty sure. But I'm sure there's some out there I haven't. But I made a point of going through and listening to every single one. So many of them are not that interesting that I just got, I was like, it was more like a chore by the end, you know, the last year. I kept on finding out about more after that. So there was never really a, a moment where I could sigh and say, I finished the book, it's done. It's like, ah, that's just one book that says what there is. I bet there's going to be another one next year and I'm going to be screwed and have to find a hundred more of these goddamn songs. So yeah, it didn't, it, I never got that satisfaction of completeness with the process. the tea and let it brew from day one like I said I was making mixtapes and altering things in my own way if I didn't like the cover to a record even when I was young if I didn't like the cover I drew my own cover and pasted it over the copy I guess where the leap came when I started really mass producing things was when I was working at my record store, 
and a lot of the things that I wanted to exist didn't. And I just noticed this over and over again. I'd say, why don't I have a record that sounds like this? I could sell a hundred of those in the store. You know, why don't I have African acoustic guitar music? At the time, there just wasn't any on vinyl. Um, why don't I have pre-war blues comps that are reasonably priced? None of them are in print right now, you know? Why don't I have gospel music? Nobody's making good gospel music right now. This is in the early 2000s that I started thinking this way. And really on vinyl, there was a very open field. There was a few labels like Revenant, Sublime Frequencies, uh, Honest Johns that were doing this stuff, but very few. It was a very open field at the time. And so I just noticed this and I thought it was crazy that nobody was doing this. So I got together with a childhood friend of mine, Warren Hill, who had a little bit of money. And we were like, hey, you know, we can fill these gaps that aren't being filled. So it was really started just because to make records for my own record store and Warren's record store in Montreal. That's why we started making these records was just for our stores and just for the customers. Started on a very small level like that. But it felt very natural. It never felt like I was doing this new, crazy, exotic thing because all my life I'd been making these kind of things and distributing them amongst my friends. So it was just extending my friend group instead of 25 people I'd make these things for. Suddenly I was making them for 100 different customers at my store, 100 customers at another store, maybe 50 customers here. Before you know it, you got 500 copies, you know? And then you're like, uh-oh, uh, there's a bunch more people who want these. I guess we should make 1,000, you know? So it really began, believe it or not, that romantically and that um, organically where it was really like me making things for friends then me making them for my store then other people's stores and that's how it grew if i'm working with an artist's work and i need to make records of it, or I'm trying to make a compilation record of all what in a singular artist's work, I try to hear everything. And right when I'm talking crap about completists, I'm, in that case, I have to be a completist. Yeah, I want to hear everything and make the best of the best of the best and go for it at once. I don't like this idea of assuming that you'll get a second shot. Make it one time and make it strong. So yeah, an artist like Michael Hurley, you know, I start working with him. I make it my business to hear every single Michael Hurley recording ever made, you know, or Dead Moon, have endless recordings. I'm like, okay, I'm doing Dead Moon records. I have to hear every single record now. So uh, that's the one time I become a completist is when I start working with an artist. Already join the band, everyone come along and join the band. Already join the band, everyone wanna run, come join the band. Already join the band, everyone along, come join the band. Already join the band, my big boy, come join the band. I think the main cultural importance of the stuff I put on records is that it speaks of, um, of cultures that do things for themselves and create their own entertainment and their own communication forms outside of the major media industry. So a lot of the most significant thing about the music on my records and how we distribute them and how we make them and all this kind of thing is that we are not relying on corporations or relying on bigger fish or bigger people to take care of our needs in terms of entertainment and also in terms of you know spiritual warmth like we're not having to go to a mega church or a, a temple or a, a mosque we're we're creating something that is a person-to-person -person spiritual thing one guy singing a spiritual song that another person can hear even if they're from a very different culture and say, oh, spirituality, that feels good. And it's nice to know that somebody can emote that way. And, and I feel that way sometimes. And, you know, creating connectivity like that. So I think that's really the most important thing that our label is doing, is showing these smaller cultures that can operate person to person that way. And trying to be true to that in the way we distribute stuff too. I think the, the sort of rumor that we're just a bootleg label is based largely on um, maybe a couple releases that had some, some legally gray area tracks. And we do always have 
there have been a couple times where we haven't been able to find artists and their families, and in those cases we put money in escrow and just sort of hope they, they pop up and still use the song. Um, I'm less inclined to do that these days, and I haven't done it in a while, but that used to be part of our modus operandi for a long time. The thing that's funny that we do is, you know, we make these mixtapes, which we sell for $3 a pop at our record store, and these have no licensed music on them, absolutely none. We don't make any money on these. There's no money being made. And they're meant more to be in a sort of radio show almost, like an introduction, a way to get people excited about these artists that are really hard to find music by. And that's why they exist on the tapes. And the original intention of the tapes was, you know, I don't know, we sell 100 copies of each or something like that in our store for local customers. And most of it was like stuff that we had in the store on record. It would be like, hey, come buy this record. Look at this great song. And they worked really well as advertisements for records I had. Um, but then this funny thing happened where the internet swooped up on them and they're all available for download now, which I don't mind. It's fine, whatever, it's just being broadcast. But strangely, our mixtapes are now downloaded probably more than anybody's even heard our records, you know? Like, I think somebody ran a blog that, that helped, lets people download this stuff said, oh, I just did 100,000 downloads on the first Mississippi tape or something. And that's just one download source, so that doesn't include people sharing files from it or other download sources. So that made my head spin, you know? I was like, Jesus Christ. And you hear these things, like I, one time I was in a coffee shop, and I walked in and the, uh, I hear this like music that's sort of like, and I'm like, I can't figure out what it is. And then I hear the next song, it's like, and, I, and, I, uh, and I'm like listening to these muddled sounds and I suddenly realize, oh my God, this is a mixtape I made, but it sounds so terrible because it's an MP3, so it has all this digital compression. And it's an MP3 of a cassette I made, which had a ton of cassette noise. They're not high quality tapes I use, these are cheap. So you have all this noise from, from the tape. And then I use these crackly old records and don't really use very good equalizing. So you hear all these crackles and treble from that too. So the three layers of noise are just creating this awful sounding thing. And then there's this kid working behind the counter, and I'm like, oh yeah, did you pick the music here? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, is this, does this sound okay to you? And he's like, what, you don't like it? Like, this is great. And I'm like, oh no, it's fine. I just, it just seems like the sound quality is kind of degraded. He's like, well, that's part of the aesthetic. It's fine. I'm like, okay. So apparently that's how a lot of people are hearing these tapes now and hearing a lot of these songs for the first time, which I would hope and pray that they would go if they really liked a song, they would go and find it in a better form after that. And it makes me feel a little guilty sometimes, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's like, it's like just the fact that this, this is getting disseminated is a good thing. It can't be a bad thing. Sharing art and music just can't be a bad thing. There's no scenario where it's a bad thing. So I'm all for it, but it is very strange and it could serve to give me a bad reputation because it does make it look like I do some major bootlegging when in fact, I'm really not. I think there is a lot of loss in the modern way of sound collecting on digitally on the computer. I think people are definitely losing out on a lot of the human contact that comes by accident of just seeking out sound. I mean, you know, in my lifetime, when you certain bands, you'd have to go to their show to buy their record. I mean, and that was an important ritual, you know, was to buy it directly from the band. To me, that created more of a forge with music that I don't really care about now, but at the time, at a punk show, if you bought the record from the person, the record had a lot a different power than it has if you just got it online. And of course, you know, I'm a big champion of the record store where I watch people all day. I watch couples meet for the first time, best friends meet and all this kind of thing over just talking about this nerdy music stuff. And I think it's a real shame that people can't have those same experiences online. There's a lot missing. I mean, I'm not overly romantic about it. I think people will always find a way to connect through art and music. I'm not like grossed out by it to the extent that I think that it's like this great crime and that it's the end of all culture. And I like that it makes music available for free and that it allows people to explore music a little easier actually. So believe it or not, it's contrary to what most people would think about me. I'm actually pretty happy about the way the digital music thing is going. That being said, I do think that records are a beautiful way to preserve music that sounds better, the covers look good, I like them as art objects, but I don't think it needs to be the only way that people listen to stuff. That's absurd to me. It's good for a weirdo like me, but I'm not expecting everyone to be just like me. 
you know i think people are always going to have spiritual experiences with music no matter what the format is and there's nothing so special about music or about records that makes it the only way that people can have a real experience with music like people who think that that's just stupid you know obviously a kid who's listening to our stuff digitally is not losing out on that level but i think that digital does run the risk of making people like I was when I was a kid sitting with my radio in bed, just taping stuff off the radio, you know, thinking that nobody else liked the same things as me or was interested in the same things as me when in fact there's probably a bunch of kids who were. I mean, it's helping create more of those kind of disconnections. One thing that concerns a lot of people is that artists aren't being supported as much because they don't get to sell their music. You know, suddenly it's all available for free or cheap. or, And that is a problem. And I do think there needs to be an awareness raised amongst people that they need to support artists. And it doesn't have to be that they buy their records necessarily. There's a lot of different ways you can support art in your life, you know? It doesn't have to be, I buy all the records by this artist to give them money. And usually that doesn't work anyway, because you're just supporting the record company, not the artist. So I think there needs to be more direct ways for communities to support their artists, you know, like in terms of giving them spaces to play in for free, giving them spaces to practice in, giving them the opportunity to record, you know, all these kind of things. And that's more important. eBay and uh, Discogs have really ruined record stores across the country, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, for one, they've created a system where the richest people get to dictate what the standard price is because you have every common person competing against the richest people for these goods on a worldwide marketplace. And then, you know, when something starts to sell for a higher price because those few people can, uh, who can afford it will pay that, if somebody has the audacity to list it for way more than it's worth and somebody pays it, suddenly that becomes the standard price. Somebody will look it up on eBay and say, well, it sold for $100 once, therefore Blind Melon's first record is worth $100, you know? And it's like, well, it did sell for $100, you know? Oh, here's another guy, bought it for $100, here's another guy. Those three rich people did, and that becomes the standard price. So it's really gone a long way to raise the prices on records. Um, I blame that wholly and entirely on eBay and Discogs, not a, not a larger demand for these things, because there's tons of these things out there. There's plenty of supply. It's just that these marketplaces have inflated the prices in a grotesque way. And then beyond that, there's the obvious stuff where they've created the convenience of finding things without having to search for other things. So you're sort of um, not going to a record store and just paging through endless records. You can just say, I'm into this and follow that in a very limited, linear way to, you know, I'm just going to collect all the Yardbirds records and then I'm going to collect all the Pretty Things records and you can do it. And it really takes away from the journey, which often leads you on other windier, more interesting paths than you would if you were just sitting there trolling eBay. And then beyond that, it's created hostages where everybody has to pay these fees to these corporations to buy and sell, you know, which is insane. Like these huge corporations now get to get a dime off every dollar or 10 cents. I think eBay's up to 20 cents off a dollar or something crazy like that at this point. So something that we could all do for ourselves on a small level, suddenly we're, we're giving away the control of that to these mega machines like Amazon.com and eBay in particular. With my record company, I do do these limited editions all the time, and they always run the risk of becoming commodities that people buy and sell on eBay for a lot of money and just things that only people with a lot of money can have. But that's never the intention when we make them limited. If I make something limited, it's because I just don't think it's something that the world needs that many copies of, you know? Or it's because I underestimate the demand for it, one of the two. And then usually I'll try to sabotage that secondary market that's that's making everything worth too much money by pressing more, just to be like, screw you. So we've actually, there was a time when people were collecting our stuff just to resell it for a lot of money. That time has passed because of I've sabotaged that whole image or that whole machine because what I've done is just repress stuff so oftenly that people, and also just made so many records that nobody can be a completist for my label anymore. And I've lost a lot of interest. This is an interesting thing that happened, is when I started my label, 60% 
and this is a large number, 60% of the people buying my records were buying them because they liked them and because they were enjoying them and because there was something about them that called to them and they were cheap. And 40% were people who were prospectors, who were buying them just to shove them in their basement, wait a few months, and then resell them on eBay for triple, quadruple what they bought them for. This was a real thing that was happening. Um, because I was when I started, I was so small, I, had, I didn't have a lot of money, so I was doing everything on a very limited basis. But then um, once I perceived this, I got really bummed and I started and fortunately my company was doing well enough to where I got to increase the size of my pressings so I ended up increasing them to 2,000 3,000 4,000 sometimes as much as 6,000 copies of these records which is unbelievable for the vinyl market especially for the music I'm putting out which is pretty underground and um, what happened was the whole secondary market that 40% of people were just buying them to resell them it fell out. They stopped buying my records because the value was no longer there. They were no longer limited. So suddenly my sales went down about 40%. Even though I was pressing more, I suddenly had to, I had to scale back down. And now, ironically, my records are genuinely small press, but they're also worth less, the ones I do now, because the secondary market is no longer there to make the prices go crazy. It's just the people buying them who actually want to own them. So my records are back to being the cheapest records in the market, um, thank God. And I'm really happy with this. Even though my, su- my sales have suffered, uh, I feel really good about it. There will always be those people. And I think that one of the problems with the record industry right now, well, the people who are doing vinyl records in particular, is that since the CD market and the download market have become so unstable and they're competing with free products and Spotify and all this crap, then... Uh, what they've decided to do is create these boutique items out of records, trying to make them limited, make people fight for them, make them special just by making them rare, these kind of things, which is a terrible strategy. And it's really messed up. It's really exploitative because they're basically making like record store day where they make, you know, thousands of new titles that are all limited and make everybody fight for them and make the prices go up and make them show up and try to buy in a frenzy for them. You know, I think it's disgusting and I'm so against it. And it's basically creating, instead of creating a sustainable industry where it's like a record store is a fun place where you can go and spend, say, 10 pounds and come away with a really great record. It's like everything is 15, 18, 20 pounds, you know? It makes it so that if I was a kid today and I went to a record store for the first time if I was 18, there's no way I would buy a record. I'd be like, this is for idiots. Why would I buy these stupid, expensive things? I can't afford these. I can get free stuff or I can do Spotify where I just pay a monthly fee and can listen to anything in the world I want or whatever the new technology is. So I would probably be one of those kids now because record stores have become boutiques for expensive crap, or most of them have. I mean, there's some that haven't, obviously. But it's it's getting rarer and rarer. So the industry is once again shooting itself in the foot instead of trying to create a sustainable industry where it's reasonable for people and they can participate on a consistent level and buy things. They've just created another fad, another trendy boutique item that people can buy in records, and soon people will realize that they can't afford to keep up with this unless they're super rich. I think that there'll always be record collectors, there'll always be an underground, which I actually kind of look forward to. I mean, those are the conditions that my store started. Records at the time I started my record store were very much an underground thing. It was the cheapest way to get music, and therefore it it attracted the people who were trying to be the most thrifty. It wasn't this, you know, boutique item. And I like those days. I don't like how it is now where even though I'm doing well at my record store and my record label's doing well, and maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot by saying this, but I liked it when it was a little more underground. Underground cultures are like, well, it's like mushrooms. They need like darkness to grow, you know? Once you start just putting everything out in the light and getting it popular, I mean, that's why I don't talk to the press or anything. You know, it's good to be in the darkness. It's good to have time to hone your message and to create an underground community. That's kind of tangentially related to records, but record stores were a really good hotbed for like weirdos for a long time, and they still are. But it was nice when it was like very, very marginal and it was for garbage collectors. I like those times and I don't mind if they come back. I will never say I'm against anybody sharing music, I mean, or art. I think it's always the right thing to do and never the wrong thing to do. 
it's how we find interconnectivity and it's probably the most important human act, you know, sharing culture. So um, I'm in agreement with uh, Kenneth Goldsmith in that when he says that the best way to preserve music and art is to disseminate it as much as we can digitally. I think it's a great idea, but I don't think it's the only thing we should do. We also have to, you know, it's like I've been talking about Alan Lomax a lot lately. He thought it was really important to keep stuff in its cultural context, too. Once you have all these ideas floating in the ether without any context and they're just ideas that are floating around, um, they lose a lot of their power and they lose a lot of their meaning, or they can. So you can give them new meaning and attach them to new ideas and make them on your mixtape and about you, but they do come from another culture, or they do come from another place geographically. And sometimes discovering these musics and discovering this art in an environment that it actually stemmed from is a thousand times more powerful than it could ever be, just having it plop on your computer as a little file that somebody sent you. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind both. I mean, I'm very, very... I, I want it to be very clear that I'm for people disseminating stuff however they disseminate it. But I also think it's important to think about context. I mean, that's one of the reasons, that's the whole reason I like records is because it's a great context to hear rec- music on for the first time. You find it, you bring it home, you put it on, it's a concentrated activity. It sounds good, it looks good. It's a great context for music. Computer, I've never had a good experience listening to a song on a computer or discovering new music or art on a computer. People will show me, like, you got to check out this artist and throw a laptop on my lap and make me look at their paintings. But if you threw a book in my hand and showed me the same paintings, I'd be much more affected. The same with music. They'll play me some digital tinny MP3 file, and I'll be like, well, I don't know, I guess it's good. But then you bring a record and ceremoniously sit me down and put a good whiskey in my hand and put that record on it has so much more of a fighting chance of affecting me and being a part of my life. So while I agree that it's good to disseminate stuff digitally, I think it's more important to create context and real experiences around music and art that get people involved in them. And this could be going to live shows. This could be inviting people over to your house to listen to music together. This can be a million different things. It could even be DJing at a bar or a club or something like that. I mean, or it could be a, on the radio is a really good context. It's like, here's a personality on the radio presenting all these things to you in a formal way where they're saying, this is my vision of what I want you to hear today. It's Sunday afternoon, and this is the music that fits this Sunday afternoon in my head, and I'm hoping I can reach you with it. Radio is a great context, as opposed to the internet, which is just people on their own time randomly receiving bits of information and maybe it'll hit them maybe it won't maybe it's the right time maybe it's not it's a very generous thing to give somebody some context to hang their hat on and experience music and art through i think people need to not forget that and think that just because we're throwing it all on the computer it it's safe or being going to be appreciated Records and tapes do have a totemic like uh, power onto themselves. And I think that um, people are treating them like commodities right now, and it's really sad. You know, people are buying and selling them like they're just nothing and collecting them like they're just widgets or lifestyle accessories, and that makes me really sad. Or record stores have become very much boutique stores where you just buy these boutique items to fill out your house. And, you know, the way I would like to see records sort of treated is as these very important carriers of the voices of our ancestors and the voices of important revolutionary ideas that they are, you know. And so in terms of like, if the digital age has made this more of a problem than it was before in terms of as digital made it more important for us to hold on to records and think of them in these ways. No, I don't think, I think this is a struggle that's been going on since the dawning of the industrial revolution or not even, even before then. I mean, it's like this whole idea of intrinsic value versus um, real value. And there's intrinsic value in a record, you know? It's something that goes beyond the price tag and beyond it as a uh, commodity. It's has the power to connect and communicate. And then there's this sort of value that people put on stuff in our society that has nothing to do with that, and it really sullies the item in a lot of ways. 
you know, for me, it's like when people come into my record store, I want them to have a real relationship. I want a record to call out to them for them to to take it home and for it to be part of their life and not just something on a shelf. And I very much believe, like, records have changed my life at various points, you know, listening to a record, having it. Even today, just listening to a couple records I hadn't heard in a long time, it, it really, like, healed me and made me feel great, you know. So they're very powerful if you let them be, and I think that's that's a beautiful thing about them. Way down yonder sometimes, better know the law. Sometimes go from marriage, sometimes it is mother-in-law. Sometimes let's get on board. Sometimes I wanna ball that jack. Sometimes I tell my honey come back. Sometimes I wanna rap that jack. Sometimes I get a hump at my back. Sometimes I'm going over here. Sometimes I'm gonna get my pal. Sometimes way down yonder. Sometimes get lose the law. Sometimes go from marriage. Sometimes it hits mother-in-law. Sometimes let's get on board. Sometimes I'm gonna ball that jack. Sometimes I tell my honey come back. Sometimes I wanna rap that jack. Sometimes I get a hump in my back. Sometimes I'm going over here. Sometimes I'm gonna get my pants.